Good morning, everybody. Glad you're here today. It's great to see you guys. If you have your Bibles or your phones or your uh, tablets or whatever, you can find Mark chapter 9. Find Mark chapter 9. We're continuing through our series, the, the uh, Jesus According to Mark, where we're looking at the, you know, basically a biography of the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. And, and we've been We've been going through uh, kind of, uh, you know, the first eight-ish chapters, kind of talking through the, you know, Mark's been answering the question, uh, who is Jesus? And last week, if you were here, you were following along online or, or kind of keeping up reading and keeping up with it, it kind of changes. So we kind of act like if it's a play, we're going into act two here. Where we're a- asking the question now and Mark is answering for us, okay, if Jesus is who he says he is, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for those of us who encounter Jesus, who have heard his words, who have, uh, are, are experiencing the miracles that he's done? And in hindsight, 2,000 years later, we kind of have to deal with and wrestle with those same questions. So we're going we're gonna to jump into just a few verses, the beginning of, of chapter 9 today. But before we do, just a quick little announcement, housekeeping item. Uh, we don't know, like, I feel like everybody tries their best, maybe, or tries to name this group of people. But we're, so we're calling it young adults. Okay, so if you're in the age range of like out of high school to 35-ish, right? In that like, kind of like still right there, you know? Like, you know, how, like how many names have we heard? Let's like young adults, young professionals, college and career. You know what I'm saying? Like if you've been in the church scene at all. But anyways, all that to say, if you're in that age range, like and you're just, you want to meet some folks and hang out. We've done a few things in the past, some events, but... Uh, we've had two gals, uh, Allie and uh, Kristen. Allie, you're right here if you want to raise your hand. So if you're in that age, age range and you're just looking to kind of get more involved and meet some more folks here at church, uh, Allie and Kristen are starting to plan some, some just like fun stuff. So one thing, if you haven't gotten the email today at 1230, yeah, uh, at, meet at Highland Brewing just right down the street here. They're going to have cornhole, just be hanging out. And uh, I think the rain's going to hold off and it's going to be nice. So yeah, so if you have more questions or you're like, hey, I'd like to get those emails to kind of figure out, let me know or let Allie know or let Amy know or just find an email on the website and email it and we'll figure it out. But we'd love to get you on that list. So, th- so that's just it. So if you're in that age range and you just want to get connected, uh, that's, a, that's a great way to do it. So today at 1230. Okay, let me read Mark 9. We're going to read verses 2 through 13 and then we're going to jump in today. Okay, so Mark chapter 9 starting in verse 2. It says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Verse 6 says, well, he didn't know what to say because they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son, Whom I love, listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, well, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, well, to be sure, Elijah does come first, and he restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. Okay, so so what what do you think of when you hear the word apocalypse? When you hear the word apocalypse, maybe you think of like the end times, Yeah? A Marlon Brando movie? Maybe. Maybe think of like that kind of weird movie Mel Gibson directed at one point. You think of like apocalypse as like, you know, like crazy events happening and fire from heaven. Like maybe that's the word you think of. That's the Hollywood version of apocalypse. Okay, the word apocalypse, what it means is just to reveal or to uncover. That's all it means. So, so in, a, in a lot of ways we could say that Instead of the words, like if like we're looking at this book, the first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we could say the we could like they could be called the apocalypse of Jesus. 
Because what it is, is is that it's the revealing of the Messiah, the uncovering and showing us who Jesus actually is. And today, we get to look at, and we just read through one of the apocalypses of Jesus, one of the uncoverings and the revealings of Jesus for who he actually is. Like Mark, all throughout, like as we've been going through it, there's been a few different ones where like there kind of been mysteries about Jesus. And then he's revealed the answer to that mystery by showing us who he is. You know, like in the first one, there's an echo to it, okay? In, the, in what we just read, the first kind of apocalypse or revealing or uncovering of Jesus echo, was echoed in the passage we just read. It was when Jesus was baptized, right, by John the Baptist, and he came up out of the water. And, and God said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased or with whom I love. And, and, and we get to see Jesus today. He reveals himself, and, and there's like some interesting little, like, tidbits in these first few verses here that, that parallels what Jesus and the disciples would have been very familiar with, a, a story uh, from the Exodus, okay? So, so, so if you kind of think of like the Exodus is kind of like the blueprint for salvation for the rest of the Bible. So, so there was Genesis where, where we learn about and we're kind of revealed who God is, and then in Exodus, God reveals who he is to his people, all right, so there's like all the stories of like the mountain, there's the laws, there's like these crazy stories about God doing incredible things and like the, the kind of showdown between God and Pharaoh in the Exodus. And so as, we're, as you're thinking back, I'm just going to make some quick Bible nerd parallels for us today, and then we're going we're gonna to jump into the, to kind of the, the heart part of the sermon. So, so the parallels like, you know, Mark starts out verse 2 saying, after six days, so just like Moses waited six days before ascending the mountain after announcing the confirmation of God entering a covenant with Israel. So what happened, Moses like, meets with God and God says, hey, go, go, to the, go to the Israelites, go to the people and say, like, I'm going to enter into a relationship, basically a marriage covenant with you. We're like, I'll be your God, you be my people, you do what's good for you and me and I'll do what's good for you and me. And, and, and like, go, like Moses, go ask the people and see if they want to do it. So he goes down the mountain and he's like, hey, are you guys in? And they're like, we're in. So then Moses waits six days. Okay, he goes on top of the mountain. In the same way, Jesus goes to the top of the mountain six days after announcing that the establishment of God's kingdom is right around the corner. Right? Remember last week when Fred preached, if you, if you were following along or you can look back in the verses, we're going to look at him again. But, but Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Messiah. Meaning like you are God's chosen one to come and and make all things new and make all wrong things right. So just like Moses was establishing the covenant with God's people and then waited six days, went on top of a mountain, Jesus announced the the coming of the new covenant by being the Messiah and he waits six days to go up on the mountain. Moses, he said like only go up on top of the mountain with three leaders, the three elders of Israel. Jesus only takes Peter, James, and John. While on the mountain, God describes to Moses what the high priestly garments would look like. And then Jesus is shown as the high priest in those garments. So when Moses went on top of the mountain, God said, okay, the priests, the people who are going to come make atonement for sins and be the mediator between them and me, they're going to wear this like, you got to bleach these robes as white as they can. You put jewels on them. They're going to wear a hat with all the shiny. So the, the idea is they're like, the imagery of the robes and the hat and everything were supposed to reflect the glory of God. And then it shows Jesus here on top of this mountain and he is wearing clothes. His clothes get brighter, it says, whiter than any human could ever bleach them. And he's shining with the glory of God. Jesus is shown to be that high priest, the one who's gonna stand in the place of humans and God, fulfill the covenant and atone for the people's sins. And then we know like kind of classic, like Moses comes down off the mountain and his face is shining from being in the presence of God and Jesus is actually like shining. He's actually shining. And so all of us, like if we're, if we're looking, we're thinking like, okay, like I want an experience like that. Like have you ever had like what you might call a mountaintop experience where, you know, maybe it's at a youth camp or a church service or just that like one night for whatever reason you just like couldn't sleep and you get down and you pray and you felt like you met God and you were experiencing what the disciples are experiencing where Jesus is like revealing himself to you or maybe it was like at VBS when you were eight years old or what I mean whatever maybe it was whatever that like have you ever had that kind of you would say like that was my mountaintop experience or maybe it wasn't as like like 
big of a deal as it is here. John Wesley, the, the, the man who started the Wesleyan movement that became the Methodist church, his experience like this, all he wrote in his journal was one word. He wrote fire. Like if you've had that kind of mountaintop experience in a worship service at summer camp in high school, whenever you were in college and you met Jesus, like how easy it is, is it for us to want to replicate that experience? You know? Like I can remember like, I can remember there being a time like in high school where I went to this, our youth group would go to the same camp every summer. And it was always like, like, you know, like I repented of everything at those camps. You know what I'm saying? Like it was like, like there's no way I'm sinning anymore, right? And then like, I'm like 12. So I just like wake up the next morning and like, you know, I'm like, whatever, I'm sinning. So then, so, but then like the next year, it's like time for youth camp. We're signing up, we're doing the, we're doing the, uh, you know, fundraiser, stuff like that. And then it's like, I start praying. I'm like, God, I want to experience the same thing I experienced last year. And we kind of want that same thing. See, what we get today is a picture of Jesus revealing himself, the disciples experiencing Jesus, having that mountaintop experience, but it doesn't last because that's not where we live, right? That's not where we live. We live off the mountain. We live down. So in 2004, here, here's, a, here's a great kind of picture of this. In 2004, there, there was a, a revolution in Ukraine. Okay, so at that point for, for decades, uh, the Ukrainian government was ran kind of behind the scenes by Russia. And there were these, these political figures that were basically Russian puppets. And in 2004, there was, there was the rise of the Orange Party, which was kind of like Ukraine's nationalists, like, we're going to take our country back. We're going to have our own native politician there that's going to look out what's best for Ukraine. And so he starts running, and, and as we get, they get closer and closer to the election, uh, they start showing the polls that, that the, the leader of this Orange Party, Viktor Yushchenko, that he was going to win. Like, he was crushing the, like, Russian-backed, uh, like, uh, candidate. And so, so the closer they got to the election, the closer they got, there, there was all kinds of like weird stuff started happening. Like Viktor Yushchenko was even like poisoned. Uh, like there was all kinds of weird tampering with polls, the news, and, and the news station was state ran. So it was basically like a Russian ran news station. And as they get to the night of the election, the polls are coming in, the numbers are coming in, and there's just like this huge change of, of the tide. Like the momentum for the candidates just totally flip-flopped. And, and at, at night, they, the, on, the, on the state-backed news channel, they announced that the Russian-backed candidate was going to win. And as they're announcing it, so just picture, we've watched, we've watched the news before, yeah? So just imagine on the big screen of the TV, all right, there's this, there's this news reporter and he's announcing what we're supposed to take as truth and what we're supposed to know to be the way that we're going to live. But in the bottom corner there was a lady who was translating in sign language. No one else in the station knew sign language. And so as she's translating, here's what she said. She said, they are all, she said, do not trust the results of the election committee. Our president is Viktor Yushchenko. They are all lies. And so what the people experienced in that moment was this big grand picture that they knew to be wrong, but they thought maybe was right. But at the bottom corner, there was the truth of this lady, the least expected person to stand up and make a stand and, and tell what reality and truth actually is. And a lot of us in life, what we want is the big and the grand, and it gets easier and easier to think that if something doesn't look right or look cool or doesn't have enough of a platform, it's not true. And see, the disciples, what they experienced on the mountain was totally true, but they wanted the big and the grand, but Jesus brings them back down to the mountain, gives them the small picture, and says, no, this is actually the way you're called to live. See, what Jesus does, he takes them on top of the mountain, and he shows us who he is. And then he says, this is how I'm going to take you there. So he shows them on the mountain, this is, this is who I am. And then he says, I'm going to tell you how to get there. So that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see how do we get to live the life the disciples saw of Jesus in the transfiguration. Because what we see pretty quick from the story is that it's not by staying in that moment. But it's by coming down the mountain and living everyday life.
Let's look at verses, let's look at verses five and six. Peter said to Jesus, he said, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he didn't know what to say because they were scared. So I kind of I love that, that we get in the parentheses, like why Peter said this. Okay, but if you kind of change the inflection on that question, like instead of saying, why did Peter say this? And you say, why did Peter say this? It kind of becomes a different question. Because we see the motivation. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But, but when we're really looking at Peter, see, Peter sees Jesus, okay? And let's remember six days earlier, six days earlier, one week. So this is like a great Sunday to Sunday kind of sermon deal. Because like six days ago, seven days ago, we heard the same words Peter heard, right? Like we get to see the story where, where Jesus says, well, who do you guys say I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the chosen one. You're the, the anointed one who's going to come fulfill the role of prophet priest and king for us, our people, and save the entire world from their sins and redeem us and and spark that work of new creation right now. But then, six days later, he sees Jesus in that that glorious moment where he transfigures his whole self and Elijah and Moses come down and meet with him. And what's the first thing Peter says to him? He says, Rabbi, teacher. It's like, wait a minute, Peter. Peter. It's easy to pick on Peter, right? It's like, Peter, hey man, do you not remember? (laughs) Like six days ago, that's not even that long, you know? Like six days ago, you said this about Jesus. Why now would you call him rabbi and why would you want to do this, right? So I think there's like four, four kind of reasons, and this is a little Bible nerdy, so just stay with me here. There's kind of four reasons why I think Peter, who is a devout Bible, like Old Testament Torah observing Jew, would have thought about building a shelter, or your, your translation may say a tent. Like, let's build a tent. The first reason uh, may be, you know, he's trying to fulfill as a good, you know, as a good first century Jew, he's trying to fulfill and wants to see the, the law come to fruition. So he's trying to fulfill Leviticus 23, which is the, the, be- the feast of tabernacles, or feast of booths, or the feast of shelters, or tents. And so he's thinking like, oh, finally, like we've got the, the trifecta here. You know, we got Jesus, we got Moses, we got Elijah. Like, let's build this and let's just stay here and camp out and fulfill the law once and for all. But if that was true, if that's what he was trying to do, that means he was still thinking that the Messiah would establish the law forever instead of do what it said in Jeremiah and Ezekiel where it said he would write the law on his people's hearts. So he was still thinking it was something like tangibly was going to happen. Or maybe, second option, Maybe he was replicating the battle cry that he heard in Samuel and in Chronicles and in Kings where where whenever like the terrible civil war broke out or whenever the Philistines came and encamped against Israel, he said the battle cry was let every man go to his own tent. So the idea was you go to your tent, you get all your stuff, you kiss your family and say, I may not see you again, I'm going to go, I may die for my country. So maybe it it was some kind of battle cry where he thought we're about to set up shop, we got Elijah which if you don't know what Elijah's capable of, like the dude called down fire from heaven and then killed hundreds of the prophets of Baal by himself, right? Like how have we not made a movie about that yet? Like 300, like there's one dude, you know what I'm saying? But like, anyways. So, so maybe he thought that, but, but, if, that, but if, if that's what Peter was thinking, then that meant he still thought the Messiah would save Israel through military might and war. Which is not, which is not the, the way. Or third option, maybe he meant to establish like a, some kind of like messianic headquarters on top of a mountain. And like, okay, this is how we're finally going to establish the government of God. Like, like, let's build some tents. We'll get everybody up here. We'll put a wall up. We'll build a government building. We'll start writing some stuff down. You know, like, we'll create our own little nation state here and we'll do that. But if that were the case, he would think that the kingdom of God and salvation would come through government power and control. And that's not, that's not how it works either. Or maybe he just meant, you know, he did grow up in, in his culture where there were temples and shrines on every corner for all the different gods of the Roman Empire and Greek mythology. Maybe he just thought, you know, I'll build a temple or a tabernacle that would divine, that would house these like divine beings. But if that were the case, which may be because he called Jesus rabbi, he called him teacher, that would put Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. And we know that that's not true either. 
But no matter why he said this, the reason why he said it is because he was afraid. See, fear leads us to control things. Like, we're afraid of how our kids are going to turn out, so we, we put super strict rules and we try to control every little thing they do. And instead of, I think I hear Amy say this a lot, instead of preparing the kid for the path, we want to prepare the path for the kid. Or maybe we're like afraid of how our significant other, like maybe, maybe we're afraid of, of losing the love that we're feeling from someone, whether that's a family member, a boyfriend, a, a spouse. So we start controlling them as much as we can because we're afraid we're going to lose that thing that we find in them that gives us life. See, it's this fear that leads us to control our lives. See, Peter, no matter what he was doing, he was afraid. And so he thought, if I can control this situation that Jesus has put me in, I'll be able to have it forever because I'm afraid. Because I'm afraid. So the problem is, here's the problem, because if we think back to what Jesus taught six days earlier to the disciples, control is the anti-action in our discipleship to Jesus. It's the anti-action. See, we can't control our lives and give it away at the same time. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressed our fears and anxieties, and he said, hey, if you're you're worried about the clothes, like, don't be afraid. Don't be anxious about the clothes you're going to wear, the food you're going to eat. Like, have you ever seen a flower not dressed well? Have you ever seen a bird go hungry? And, like, are you... As God's, like, created family who he breathed life into, like, are you not of more value than they are? Like, see, we, what we do is we often conceal our fear and control with words like wisdom or planning, right? Like, I'm just trying to be wise here. And I think today the words that we're going to look at show us the difference and planning out of security and who God is and who he made you to be and masking our fear with control, especially in our lives of discipleship. See, what happens is the, the, the verses we're looking at today, they're really kind of the exclamation mark on the words that we heard Jesus say a week earlier at the end of, of, of uh, chapter 8. Look at verses 7 real quick. It says, Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. He said, This is my son whom I love, Listen to him. Okay, if faith was all about sight, Peter and the disciples would have had a lot easier time whenever Jesus was arrested and betrayed, right? Okay, but listen to what it says. I love this. What happens at the beginning of verse 8? Voice from heaven, they see Jesus, cloud, Moses, Elijah, the, the glory of God shown in the person of Jesus, transfigured before their eyes. God's voice comes out of heaven and says, this is my son, listen to him. What's the first thing they do at the beginning of, of verse 8? Somebody shout it out. They looked around. They were still expecting that experience they just had. But, but faith doesn't come through sight. Faith comes through hearing the words of Jesus and obeying. What Jesus was trying to teach them is what he already taught them. Look at verses 8 through 10. It says, suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw any with, anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down from the mountain... Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead means. See, Jesus was trying to get them nailed into there. He said, the voice of God said, listen to Jesus. And Jesus once again goes into detail and says, hey, what, basically what you guys just saw, the only way that's going to become a reality for you is through death and suffering and humility, not through control, not through power, not through might. See, what Jesus is trying to get them to understand is that there is no way in the life of Jesus, following Jesus, the way of Jesus, there's no way around suffering and humility. It's the only way to follow Jesus. Let's look back at verses 31 through 33 of chapter 8. He then began to teach them, right after Peter confesses him as the Messiah, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed 
and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But Jesus said, he turned around and looked at his disciples and rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Like merely human concerns, that's the control. Like we see Peter acting out the control he was trying to do on the mountain too where Jesus says, hey, like, like they had a concept. The disciples had a concept of resurrection. But for them, the resurrection of the Messiah was just from, from already dead to life and then like boom, all things better. Like that was in their mind the formula. Like the, the whole, all the chapters in Isaiah from 42 to 56 like wasn't resonating with them because they thought, well, we've already been suffering so much and have gone through so much. Surely we don't have to do that anymore. It's like, surely we don't have to hurt. Surely we don't have to humble ourselves. Like we've been in captivity. Like look at Israel's history. Like Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, you know what I'm saying? Like all, like now the Roman Empire has come in and taken us captive. Like there's no way we have to humble and submit ourselves even more to other people. Surely not our Messiah. Our, they had a concept of resurrection, but they had no concept of suffering and humility. But the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. That's the path who any of us who say we follow Jesus have to take. Because there's no such thing as gaining your life and giving it away. There's no such thing as denying yourself and keeping yourself at the same time. See, Jesus said in verse 34 of chapter 8, 34, he said, Then he called the crowds to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life or their soul will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? See, if we want to follow Jesus, we have to learn. There's There's no way around it. We have to learn what it means what it means to be meek and humble and put others' interests above our own. And already, if you're like me, for the last two weeks preparing to stand up at 30 years old with two kids that wake up before 7 o'clock every single morning, like, just on a silly way, like, denying myself a lot of times is just like not watching English Premier League soccer and getting up and reading a book to my kid. You know, like that's silly, but like it's real. Like I would rather me like not sit on the floor. I'm 6'4", you know? Like once you hit a certain height, wearing shorts in public and sitting on the floor just is no longer comfortable. (laughs) Just personally. Uh, Some dudes can pull it off. Josh Montgomery, you can pull it off. You can pull off shorts. I cannot pull off shorts in public. I just feel so weird about it. Like, having kids in my life, like, I do not want to wake up early. I would rather sleep in. You know, but like, man, if I'm going to teach my kids, and, so, and the way this relates for us is when we hear the word soul, like we hear Jesus talking about soul, oftentimes we kind of dismiss that because we, we equate like losing your life or losing your soul with like salvation. And so we say like if we're a good, you know, churchy person, we say, like, well, we can never lose our salvation. So we don't think a lot about it. But the soul is so much more than that. See, the soul is that part that allows us to love and to grieve and to feel and to relate to other people what we've been given from God. The soul is what organizes and encompasses us as people. It's the deepest part of the self in terms of like overall operation. Okay, so if we're thinking about the soul, it's like, that's why we say like, if you see like certain musicians or artists, we say, man, they put so much soul into their work, right? It's why we as humans are able to relate to things that are like just totally inanimate and it sparks something in us, like a sunset or a waterfall or, or, you know, or a good cup of coffee or some, some apple pie. Like, that, like it's the part of us that like experience God's grace in all things. Like, like it's, it's, we experience things with our physical body and it affects our emotions, our psyche, our feelings. And then our soul is what allows us to take what we experience from God, both intrinsically by how we were created by and for him, but then externally by what we learn from God later and give it to other people. And at the same time, receive it from other people. It's the part of us 
that makes us feel like when we've met God, we can say, man, my soul is full. Or when there are times in life where we feel like we've, quote, unquote, missed God, we can say, like, man, like, I just feel like my soul's empty right now. It's because something's out of check, something's out of balance. And so what Jesus is saying, he says, hey, what good is it for you if you get to control everything you want in your life, but you miss being able to relate to me and or other people well? Ruth Haley Barton has a great quote talking about losing your soul. And it says, she says, losing your soul is like losing your credit card. You think it's in your wallet, so you don't really give it much thought until one day you reach for it and you can't find it. The minute you realize it's gone, you start scrambling to find it, trying to remember when you last used it or when you last had it in your possession. And no matter what's going on in your life, you stop and look for it because otherwise major damage could be done. See, man, maybe you realize you lost your soul whenever someone you love, you're in conflict with them and you no longer feel remorse about it. Or you feel like, If you humble yourself, you'll give them a step up on you and there's someone that you're supposed to be sacrificing for and loving and nourishing. Or maybe you feel like you lost your soul because you're sitting there and you're thinking, I I can't remember the last time I desired to talk to God. Like, not that you have to be great at prayer, but even just the the desire to meet with God. Maybe something's a little out, out of whack and you're reaching for that credit card and you're like, I thought it was right there. See, what Jesus is saying is he's telling Peter, hey, this is how I'm going to to give salvation to the world. It's by humbling myself to the point of being a servant. Paul kind of encapsulates it in Philippians 2. He says, I'm going to humble myself to the point of being a servant, even to death on a cross. And I'm going to give my life away. And he says, "If if anyone wants to follow me, they have to do the same thing. That's why Jesus took the disciples on top of the mountain and and revealed himself. He wanted them to know how important he was, what he taught them six days earlier, and that it's real and that it's true, and that exaltation and glorification comes one day, but between now and then, our job is to serve and to humble ourselves and to give our lives away. The way to save our souls isn't actually for looking for it, It's through death to self, and it's through humbling ourselves before others. Do you know what the biggest obstacle in Matt Sutton's discipleship to Jesus is? It's me. It's not my cell phone. You know, it's not the movies I watch. It's not not the culture around me. It's not all these different philosophies the world's projecting on me. The biggest obstacle in my discipleship of following Jesus on the way to the life of the cross is me because I'm still learning to deny myself. And it's through humbling myself before others. Let's just, let's just think about what Jesus said for, for one more second. He said, whoever will save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the sake of the gospel will save it. See, the gospel what Jesus is talking about there, he hasn't had the death and resurrection, so the gospel that we know now is, is a little different than what Jesus is talking about. See, the gospel there is the good news that Jesus actually established his rule and reign on earth. Now, now what he's saying is, if anyone wants to, for, for the gospel, to see the good news is that we know that Jesus now has established his reign and rule on earth officially, finally, forever through his life, death, and resurrection, and he's gonna come back one day And so it's our jobs now, as Paul says, to live as ambassadors for Christ. Because if we're in Christ, we're a new creation. We're already that work of new creation that Jesus started in the resurrection. And he's going to come back and finish it one day. See, we, it's our job, as Jesus, as his ambassadors, to establish his rule and reign on earth, not through military might or government power, but through humility and servanthood and denying ourselves for the good of other people and the glory of God. And so we see from the disciples throughout the Gospels a few different reactions, and I'm assuming in this room we're having some similar reactions. See, all throughout Jesus' ministry, some people, they didn't have ears to hear. See, when Jesus said things like this, it was like the disciples, they're like, what are you, like, 
there's no reason for me to humble myself because I've already been beat down so much, Jesus. Like, I have no areas in my life where I have to serve others or humble myself. Some people, they, they know there's something they're facing right now, but they don't want to. Remember the story of the rich young ruler where he comes up and he says, hey, I've done everything, all the law, what am I supposed to do? And Jesus says, go sell everything and give it to the poor. What he's saying is there's a part of your soul that you haven't exercised yet. Yeah, you're good at the vertical relationship, but your horizontal relationship's got to get better. You've got to reciprocate that goodness and generosity and grace that I've given you. And the, and the rich young man, what's, it says he walks away sad because he had a lot of good stuff. And he could keep it. He could keep his good stuff. But he's going to lose that part of his soul. It's a trade-off. Or maybe some of you in here, and this is very real, like, you're like, hey, I, like, if we're talking about the cross and dying to self, like, I cannot handle any more suffering in my life. Like, I can't do it. Like I, like, I just can't. And as we look through these last few verses, I want to I kind of address kind of those three different responses to what Jesus is saying. See, if we, if we try to constantly kind of, like, balance and we kind of build a tolerance to, like, how much we're willing to give up before we think we're owed something, you know, we, we, we hear the words of Jesus and we, like, pull them aside or, or maybe we did, we have like been praying to Jesus and we're taking notes and we're hearing from him and it's like, hey Jesus, uh, like I know, I know what you're saying. Like I know I'm supposed to give away and, and stuff like that, but like I've got, like I got kids one day and I gotta leave something to them, okay? I'm not saying that's a, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm, I'm not against wisdom. I'm just saying, like at what point are you getting to control your life and you're not giving it away? Say, Jesus, if I apologize, I know I'll never get one in return, so what's the point? Like, why would I humble myself before them if I know I'm never going to get that back? And Jesus says, okay, you can keep that, you can control that, but what are you going to lose? If you can't reciprocate that grace that I've given you, Jesus, if I drop this, man, like, whatever it is, if I drop this, this, like, formal agreement we have, I drop this lawsuit, if I drop this whatever, like I'm not going to get what I'm owed and I need to teach them a lesson. Jesus says, okay, keep it. What are you going to lose? What part of the grace reciprocation from me to you and you to other people are you going to lose? He says, if I work all day and I just want to come home to a clean and quiet house and I don't have enough energy to play with my kids or wife once they're down, I'm not going to do that, Jesus. I just want to sit on the couch and watch football. Okay? You get that. You control that part of your life. Don't give yourself away. But what are you going to lose? See, in verse 11 it says, and they asked him, what did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? What they're trying to do, they're trying to take what Jesus is saying and make it a little more palatable. They're making it easier to chew for them. Because like, what well, Jesus like, that's not, okay. All well and good, uh, but like we still got this to wait on. We still got this. And when they talk about Elijah, like they're trying to think of that big event. They're trying to think and they're trying to process it. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, hey, Jesus, we're still doing the work. And so what they're doing is they're putting off the, the idea of dying to self and denying yourself for the way of Jesus. Because they're saying, hey, we're st-, basically what they're saying is we're doing good work. Like we're still waiting for Elijah to come here. You know, so like we'll keep doing our part. And then once he comes, he does his thing. Because what they're saying is like, like, Jesus, we don't have anything to give up because we're already doing it. Like, it, it, it's like, like, I'm not going to get, like, I can't give that up or whatever because, like, I'm doing, I'm doing the Lord's work, right? I'm doing the Lord's work. Let me tell you, there, there's a tale of a pastor, well-known pastor. Uh, he was a theologian, born in the late 1800s. He wrote tons of books. Uh, anybody heard A.W. Tozer? He wrote the, the, the Pursuit of God. I mean, just, like, at... at uh, Moody Bible College in Chicago, like some of the professors and head of the school said, every student who goes through there needs to read every one of this guy's books, A.W. Tozer. See, A.W. Tozer, he got what he wanted, right? I mean, he was saved at 17 years old. He went to Bible college as a young man. He got called to pastor a church in his mid-20s. He got married. He had kids. He ended up pastoring and speak. He had more speaking engagement and preached the gospel to more people than anyone else in his lifetime. He wrote tons of books that got published, the man, you look at him and you think he's a man of God. I mean, he's getting everything that a, that a pastor or a preacher would want. Like, like, he's getting the book deals. He won't take a salary from his church. Like, he just says, give it away to the poor, all this stuff. But behind the scenes, 
He's got a wife with six kids. And while he would stand on stage and he would preach about hospitality, he wouldn't wouldn't let his wife or kids invite anyone over to their house. Like he died pretty young. He died at the age of 64. And within within a few months, his wife remarried. And about a year after his death, they asked her about it. And she said, I'm actually glad that he's dead. Because he learned to love Jesus. He never learned to love us. His kids resented him. They hated it when he was actually at home for the dinner table because he, he ignored them. He wouldn't talk to them. Like, a few of them left the Christian faith completely. See, Tozer was a man who said, hey, I'm going to do everything and what i got to do until Jesus comes back. But he lost his soul. He couldn't relate to his kids. He couldn't relate to his wife. Like, he, he, could, he was a man who was... What Fred, Fred opened a sermon a few months ago with a saying that uh, his family used to say that they're too heavenly minded for any earthly good. And that was Tozer. That was A.W. Tozer. He got to keep and get everything he wanted, but he couldn't love and, and turn away the fame and the money and the speaking to just teach his kids what it actually looked like to follow Jesus. So, kind of address those three, those kind of three different folks in the, you know, reactions to what Jesus is saying. Maybe we're in the room, those who, who think, you know, you don't have anything to humble yourself or give your life away to. Or maybe you know what you got to do, but you just don't want to, and you're trying to weigh out that kind of is it worth it kind of deal. Um, and then there are those of us who are like, I, I hear what you're saying, Matt, I can't handle anymore. Like, when the Bible talks about oppressed and downtrodden, I should put my picture there. That's how some of you feel, and that's real. And so for, for, for the first reactions in the room, or to those of us who hear like, I don't have anything to humble myself for, let me, let me just ask, um, what do you think you're owed that Jesus didn't get? Because when Jesus was in the garden praying and said, God, if there's any other way for this to happen, let this cup pass from me. And then he said, but it's not my will but yours to be done. And he humbled himself and died, right? I mean, Peter's thinking about might and exaltation, and instead of setting up a military embattlement where they, where they kill their enemies to save, Jesus handed himself over to their enemies to be killed so that he could save everyone. And so I'm just wondering, for all of us, it's been a question that's wrecked me this whole, these, these last two weeks preparing for today, what do I think I'm owed that wasn't given Jesus? And for those of us in the room who, who are asking the question, is it worth it? Like, I know there's stuff I need to do, but is it worth it? So kind of the tale of two pastors. You have A.W. Tozer. Uh, I want to tell a pastor of a, of a man he was in his, that I'm, I know personally. In the, in the, he was born uh, in the mid-1900s, and he was coming up, going through ministry, becoming a young pastor, kind of in the rise of like the megachurch scene in the, the 80s and 90s. He was in Atlanta, which is like megachurch, mecca, like the hub, of, like they're on every single street corner. He was there, he was on staff, he was the associate pastor, the next in line to become the pastor of a church that had just grown to like a few thousand people. They had started a, 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 a school, like it was growing like crazy. Their pastor was getting book deals, traveling all over the world to preach, getting fame and notoriety. This guy was the next one up in line. But every night he'd go home to his wife and two kids, and he just kept asking, like, is it worth it? Like, can I preach? Can I know all these people at church better than I know my own family? And he decided it wasn't worth it. And my dad left that, the opportunity to have the stage, have the lights, have that. And he went and pastored a church in South Georgia. And, and not to say this is the end-all, be-all, but just kind of the legacy of two pastors comparing who gets to have everything they want and lose their soul. My dad's still in a, in a, in a happy, faithful marriage after 40-something years. My older sister's a pastor at a church in, in Georgia, full-time, my, my younger brother's in seminary. Like, we call my dad every day. And I was talking to him this week, and I was asking him what that was like. And he said, you know, you're, you're going to give something up either way. Wouldn't it be better to stand before the Lord and say, I wasn't willing to sacrifice my family? It was better to give up notoriety and money and a career than to give up my soul and the soul of my loved ones. So I'm just asking, you're going to give something up. 
Is it better to give up your pride and ask for forgiveness to that person or to serve someone and give up your, your college game day on Saturday? Or is it, what's, it, what's, what's the better trade-off? And for those of you who can't feel like, 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 I don't know if I can handle any more humiliation in my life. Let me just hopefully bless you with this. Psalm 18.6 says, In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry came before him into his ears. See, God has always had a special place in his heart for the persecuted and the oppressed. He's the God. Do you remember God in Genesis was named by Hagar? She named him. The first time God was given a name in the Bible, Hagar, it's a name we use as a proper name now. In Hebrew, it means the immigrant. So here you have an immigrant who was taken into captivity by the wealthiest family in the land. And when they didn't get what they wanted, they took her and they sexually abused her and she became pregnant. And then whenever she, Sarah, Abraham's wife, became pregnant with her, own child, she cast the immigrant, threw her into the wilderness with her baby. And when she cried out to God, he heard her and she named him the God who hears. You see, God is the one who helps those who have no other help. He's the God who loves those who feel like no one else loves them. He's the God who hears those voice, who have, whose voice has been taken away by others more powerful than them. So if you feel like your cross is too heavy for you, just know you're on the exact same path of Jesus who needed help carrying his cross up to the top of the mountain to die for your sins. He sees you and he hears you. So is your calling to God asking for more strength to continue in a life of humiliation and suffering? Let me just say, God has no intention to leave you alone. He has no intention to leave those who are suffering for righteousness' sake empty. Matthew 5.11 says that if you're suffering for righteousness' sake, your reward is great in heaven because in the same way they persecuted the prophets like Elijah. So as we close today, I want to just spend a time of prayer and I just want to take a few minutes of our, as we Think about our souls, that collective, that part of us that encompasses our whole being. We'll just take inventory of our souls real quick. Sometimes your soul gives you warning signs through that, t- that tightness in your shoulders, the way your heart started racing whenever you thought about that name that came to your mind, or maybe that, that pit in your stomach of where, man, I need to ask for forgiveness or I have to do this and I don't want to because it's going to be humiliating. Is there anything that the Holy Spirit brought to your attention today? Areas of your life where control is overpowering your ability to humbly follow Jesus and humble yourselves before others? Maybe you feel like you've lost a part of your soul, whether that's relating to God or relating to other people. Maybe it's because there's something that is not confessed to God or to someone who you've hurt. Is it something that maybe you refuse to forgive? Or to give up. Whatever it is, let's just take, take a moment. Let's close our eyes. Paul in 2 Corinthians say that we have the spirit of God living in, in us. We have this treasure, but it's in jars of clay. These broken, hurting bodies. And so as we take inventory, what, what's that inventory of our soul saying? And as you're thinking through whatever the Holy Spirit is bringing to your mind, bringing to your heart, that part of your soul that you need to let release control of and give to God or humble yourself before another person, we have to remember that we're not alone in this. We're sitting in a room with a bunch of people that have souls that are in broken bodies, that are living the same life, the way of the cross, trying to follow Jesus and 
we're a part of a heritage of people who have been humbled and suffered for the name of Jesus. I mean, even Paul said, I am completing the sufferings of Christ for you as he was writing to one of the churches he planted. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, he scorned the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus says, we look to you, the pioneer of our faith, the one who first, before any of us, died and suffered and gave your life as a ransom for many. And then the perfecter who died on the cross, who conquered death, the ultimate enemy of us, and then rose from the grave. Jesus says, we look to you as we put our eyes on you and we hear you say things like, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers for theirs is the kingdom. And God, in our, our world and our minds, that doesn't make any sense at all. But Jesus, we know that those of us who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled and any of us who are persecuted for righteousness sake as we seek to live in a whole relationship with you and with the people around us, you said that we will be satisfied. And so Jesus, as we turn our eyes to you, the one who's in heaven interceding on our behalf, who once and for all made the perfect sacrifice for our sins, no longer needing a high priest on earth because we have you in heaven, we ask you today to meet us in these places. Meet us in these places of humility, of suffering. Let that psalm be true, whereas we cry out to you, you hear us and let us live in that truth. Because it's gonna be hard leaving, the, leaving today and having to wrestle with as we get in the car, am I gonna make that phone call? Am I gonna send that text? Am I gonna do this tomorrow when I wake up? As we already start kind of wrestling with our human nature, those things that so easily entangle us. Jesus, we're gonna need you to set us free because you came and died to set us free and those who are free in you are free indeed. So Jesus, be with us. Give us that freedom. In your holy name we pray. Amen.